One of the things that Melanie and I enjoy doing perhaps the most is getting together with friends and brothers and sisters over a good meal, having a good conversation, having good fun together. When we go to a restaurant, though, you might expect that that restaurant is authentic to what it is trying to be, right? If you're in an Italian restaurant, you would expect things to be Italian. You would have Italian food. If you go to a Mexican restaurant, likewise. Probably don't walk into an Irish pub and order a burrito. It's not the way that works, right? The representation of something should feel like the thing it is trying to represent. Likewise, the church of God should reflect, watch this, the kingdom of God. What we have here is an outpost of the kingdom of God in Sussex County, in Vernon, New Jersey. And we should do our best to reflect the kingdom of God, what that looks like as much as possible, the kingdom of God. In church, we must reflect that kingdom well, and we must do it authentically. But you know what gets in the way? Sin. Because unlike the kingdom of God in heaven right now, there is no sin in the kingdom of God in heaven. And unlike the kingdom of God that Jesus Christ will inaugurate when he returns, there will be no sin in that kingdom either. But right now, in the church, unfortunately, there's sin. Why? Because we're all sinners. We're all sinners that have been saved by grace, but still sin can easily entangle. Sin is incompatible with the kingdom of God. And we think about what awaits us, but right now we remember that sin is still here among us. And we're not in that heavenly kingdom yet where there is no sin. We're here. We're here in Sussex County on a Sunday, grinding it out in the rain for whatever reason, right? We're seeking to be faithful, and sin is present and easily entangles us. And yet we are supposed to be a pure representation of the kingdom of God. How do we do that? What do we do when sin comes up? Because it's going to come up, and Jesus has given us a process. So hopefully you're in Matthew 18 that Piero read for us. Last week, we started a little mini-series within our series in Matthew about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God being a place like no other, especially unlike the kingdom of the world that is around it, a place where the least are the greatest, a place where we shepherd one another, but also a place where we're serious about sin. And so much so, Jesus gives us a process for how to deal with sin when it comes up. Notice I didn't say if it comes up, right? When it comes up in the kingdom. Now just keep in mind, the last passage we left off, Jesus has just told them that the kingdom of God is a place where we shepherd one another. He gave that example of leaving the 99, right, and going after the one. And so if one of our own is trapped in sin, we need to go after them. We need to shepherd them. We need to say something. We need to bring them back. If someone wanders off into sin, the loving thing to do is not to let them wander farther off into sin. The loving loving thing to do is to go and get them. Look at verse 15 of Matthew chapter 18. And it says this, Simply, as PR read for us, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So if someone sins against you, here's what you do. You go and you talk to them. And you go and talk to them one on one. Here's what you don't do. You don't ignore it. 
You don't stuff it down inside and let that turn into bitterness, right? You don't ghost them because they sinned against you. You don't go on Facebook and start vague booking. That's a thing. I know it. You go vague booking and start, well, some people in this world just can't be trusted with the things that I tell them about. It's like, well, obviously everybody just knows that something happened, right? Or you don't do the Christian thing and call up your buddies and say, we really need to pray for Lenny just because. <laughs> don't say anything, but this is, this is kind of what happened, so let's pray for him. No, you just gossiped, and you whitewashed it in a prayer request. That's another thing we don't do. You don't call your friend to vent. You don't try to form a coalition against this other person to convince everybody that you're right and they're wrong. You go to them, and you talk to them, and Jesus says you go, and you go alone. But before you do anything, you pray. You think. You ask God for wisdom and for leading you ask God to search your heart because our hearts can't be trusted. Our hearts are also full of sin. Our hearts, as Jeremiah 17 tells us, are wicked and deceitful and sick, and who can understand them? So there is a possibility, just hear me out, there is a possibility that you could be wrong. Maybe it isn't sin. Maybe they didn't sin against you. Maybe you're just oversensitive. Maybe you didn't sleep the night before. Maybe whatever. You need to keep that in mind. Jesus actually already talked about this in chapter 7, verse 5. He said, first, take the log out of your own eye before you go take the speck out of somebody else's. Maybe the speck in your brother's eye isn't a speck at all. Maybe you're just seeing things. Maybe it doesn't even need to be taken out. Maybe you could just forbear it. Take the time to pray, to search your heart, but also search God's word, right? We're not coming against someone with our personal preferences and pet peeves. We're coming to talk to somebody about sin. And if you're going to talk to somebody about sin, you need to be able to find it in the Bible. And when you talk to somebody about that, we need to use our Bibles and we need to go to those passages. We need guidance from the Holy Spirit. We need wisdom. We need discernment. We need boldness. Because who likes doing this? Nobody. It's awkward. It's difficult. There's risk involved. Take the time to pray before you do anything. But before maybe even that, maybe remind yourself most importantly of the goal. Because what does that verse say? Verse 15 just said, if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. The goal isn't to win an argument. The goal isn't to prove a point or make them come around to your way of thinking. The goal is reconciliation. That's the goal. You want to win your brother back. The goal is restoration from sin, and that is all over the New Testament. Paul hits it once, for example, in Galatians 6, 1, where he says, Brothers, if anyone's caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should, watch this, restore him. But watch how we're supposed to do that. In a spirit of gentleness, keeping watch over yourself, lest you too be tempted. The goal of going and talking to them alone is reconciliation. We've got to keep the end in mind as soon as we start. And so I'll say it this way. The kingdom of God is a place of reconciliation. Kingdom of God is a place of reconciliation. Here's the big why. We're going to see that in detail next week. Why is it a place of reconciliation? Well, we just talked about it at the table. Because we were sinners. We just sung about it. We were enemies of God, and now we are seated at his table. We reconcile because we have been reconciled. That's the big why. 
And we'll see that in detail next week. Therefore, we freely forgive and we seek reconciliation through the gospel of Jesus who has reconciled us back to God. We seek to reconcile with others because that is the loving thing to do. It's not a loving thing to do to let a brother wallow in their sin. One commentator said this, love them enough not to talk to everyone in the world about it. Love them enough not to sit back and watch them wander deeper and deeper into sin. We think the best of them. One of our elders says this all the time, always seek to put the best construct on something. Before you go off into battle, before you start judging hearts, give them the benefit of the doubt. Always seek to put the best construct on things. Don't immediately condemn them as judge and jury of their heart. You're seeking to talk to them about this, not nail them to the wall. The goal is reconciliation. So how does this reconciliation take place? Let's back up, unpack this verse in verse 15. Well, as we said, after we've spiritually prepared ourselves right through prayer and seeking God, we go, and we go alone, like face to face, like not a text message, right? Like not a DM on Instagram, like the preferred method of dealing with sin is face to face. Midweek, this past week, every Wednesday, 6.30 p.m., upstairs in the office, shameless plug, we looked at Charles Simeon, and he said this, it is remarkable how much evil can be averted by doing things face to face. How many of us have responded to a text message that did not mean what that text message said, right? We go roaring off into battle, and then we realize that that text message that was taken way out of context. You can't, read, you can't read context. You can't read feeling. You can't Do not. Going to them alone does not include text messaging. It means going to them face to face. But also look at this. Who is initiating this reconciliation? Not the person who was offended, right? Or sorry, not the, not the offender, rather, but it is the person who was offended, the person who was sinned against. Sometimes we fall into this trap if we've been sinned against, if we've been offended, right? We kind of sit back and we'll say, okay, as soon as they realize what a jerk they are, then maybe I'll talk to them. Once they realize how wrong they were, give it a little bit. Then maybe they'll come talk to me, but I'm going to let this stew a little bit. Right? That is a sinful attitude. That is not what we're talking about. Jesus didn't take that position with us, did he? He reconciled with us. And we were the sinners. Spurgeon put it this way, it is useless to expect the person who does the injury to try to make peace. The injured should be the one to start the reconciliation. That's what we see here. We see the one who was offended is the one who makes the first move to reconcile. Church, this should be happening all the time. This first step, this verse 15, going to each other, asking what that was, clarifying about sin should happen all the time. It should happen all the time in our marriages. It should happen all the time in our parenting. Yes, parents, sometimes we have to ask for forgiveness from our kids when we sin against them. I know it's difficult, right? Kids, ask for forgiveness from your parents when you sin against them. It works the same way, right? With our relationships, with our friends, with our care group members, with all of that. And we go, and we go face to face, and we go alone. And Jesus says, we tell him his fault or her, her fault, right? We point out where the sin was, and we point out how that affected me. Here's a tip. Use the Bible. 
Right? We go and we take the Bible and we look at it, we open it up and says, well, it says in Romans that we should outdo one another in showing honor. We should honor one another. And when you did that or when you said that or when this happened, I didn't feel like you were honoring me and it didn't look like you were honoring me. And then ask questions. Don't just automatically assume they had the worst intentions in mind. Ask questions. What was that about? Help me understand that. Help me process that. Why did you, why did you say that? Because I, I, I took it as a sin against me. Maybe it wasn't, but help me understand that. Ask questions. Don't just point fingers. Find out the context of what is going on. Sometimes you'll find out it's a giant misunderstanding. That should happen a lot. Oh, no, I didn't mean it that way. That's not what I meant. Remember, you could be wrong. Remember, it could be a misunderstanding that gets cleared up right away. Other times, the person will say, you know, you're right. I blew it. That was sin against you. I was, I was irritable with you. I did speak harshly to you. I did not honor you in the way that I treated. Will you forgive me? Yes. Everything. You've gained your brother back. Sometimes that will happen. Sometimes it's a misunderstanding. Sometimes it is immediate repentance and forgiveness. Both of those options are preferred, right? Because then we've gained your brother back. Other times, not so much. Other times you can't get either one of those resolutions. And then what? Are we just out of luck? No, Jesus gives us another step. Look at verse 16 of Matthew 18. He says, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you so that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Right away, we see in the text that Jesus is indicating this is step two. This is escalating here. So we couldn't get reconciliation from the first step. And he says, if he does not listen, like meaning hear and understand, and you're not reconciled, then here's step two. Don't give up. He says, bring one or two others along. And he adds some reasoning, and he, he quotes actually the law of God from Deuteronomy chapter 19. And we'll even see, see immediately that this is how a lot of our own law today is based. 19.15 says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or any wrong in any connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. Why? Well, it's obvious there's an impasse. There's a miscommunication there. There's a failure to come to reconciliation. We need more minds in this. We need more ears. We need more understanding. We need more people involved. That's why when the cops come to investigate a crime, what do they do? They get witnesses. They try and hear all sides of the story. They try to build a case. That's why even today in criminal courts, that's what we have. We have witnesses that come forward and tell their side of the story, and then the jury decides. We also want witnesses, so it's not just one person's word against the other person's word, right? We want to involve more people. We also want to increase the seriousness of what's being said. We also want that person to be like, hey, I've brought Ron with me, and, and I really want you to think about what we were talking about the other day. And that person should maybe stop and think and go, okay, maybe he's serious about this. Maybe I, should, maybe I should reconsider what I said or what I did. It's supposed to be an escalation of seriousness. Again, why? So that reconciliation can be reached. That's what we're going for here. 
So who do you bring with you? Just anybody off the street? Anybody that you think will say that you're right? <laughs> you want to pick the person that, yeah, uh, he's going to agree with me or she's going to agree with me. No, do not pick the person in that way that you think is going to agree with you. Let's keep the goal of reconciliation here in mind. Bring someone with you that you think can give the both of you the best chance of getting a reconciliation. Bring someone with you that knows and loves the both of you. Someone who may even have knowledge about this sin issue or even had been an eyewitness in what happened that could kind of collaborate what you are saying. And the same rules apply here. Before you ask anybody, pray, think, do I need to do this? Is this really sin? Help me, Lord. Who can I bring with me? Who can help me in this? Pray, ask the Lord to lead you to who is the wisest choice. And again, keep the goal in mind. We want reconciliation, and reconciliation requires a relationship. And the kingdom of God, our second point, is a place of relationships. The kingdom of God is a place of relationships. Ah, yes, relationships. You have to be in a relationship in order to have an offense in the first place, right? And you have to have relationships with others that you will then bring along to try and help someone reconcile this relationship. But relationships are hard. One book title says, Relationships, a mess worth making, right? That idea that, yeah, relationships are hard. Sometimes they're sticky and messy. So why do it? Why bother having relationships? Some of us can actually be tempted to think that way. That's not a good way to think. We need relationships with all the messes. Again, why? I'm going to bring us back to the gospel again. Can you imagine Jesus just tossed us to the curb the moment that we sinned against him? He could have. But in his plan, the plan of God, he knew that we would need a savior. And so, yes, he wanted a relationship with us and and. and we wouldn't last a minute if Jesus were to cast us aside. But Jesus loves us, watch this, with tenacious grace. He isn't giving up on us, and we shouldn't give up on our relationships that easily either. We fight for them. We wade into the awkwardness. We embrace the awkwardness. We embrace the hard conversations out of love. We bring others with us, and it opens up, again, this mind-blowing possibility that we might be wrong. Maybe you're going to bring the witness along, and maybe the witness is going to say, yeah, I don't really think that's what happened. Or I really, I'm not sure this is really a sin. This might be more of a personal preference issue. This might be more of something you're just oversensitive to, right? You have to be prepared for the reality that you're not seeing things clearly. That's another reason why we bring a witness. There's enough sin to go around. A good rule of thumb is if you're ever in conflict with somebody, try to find something. Try to find your sin. Try to find something to repent for because it's there somewhere. Even if it was just the first five minutes and you dreaming of all the ways of how you want to kill that person, right? There's still sin there. You still need to confess and repent. There's enough sin to go around. Love them enough to be okay with being wrong. But the reality is that we should be bringing others along to hopefully give them the chance to think twice. Maybe this is more serious than I thought. Maybe I should really think about this. The other person should be sitting them down, should be hearing the whole story, should be earnestly seeking to be impartial. And if there's actual sin there that should have been repented of in step one, 
That's where you both have to do the hard work again and say, no, look, think about this. This is actually sin. And it says it in the Bible. And we really want you to repent. We really want you to ask for forgiveness. We really want to be restored. We really want to put this behind us. Let's reconcile this relationship. That's the goal. The kingdom is a place of relationships. But what if they still refuse to listen? Look at verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Once again, Jesus, it's clear, giving us an escalation path. Okay, step one didn't work, you go to step two. Step two didn't work, here's step three. If he doesn't listen to them, tell it to the church. Now, keeping in mind the goals of relationships, of love, of reconciliation, this in all likelihood does not mean standing up on a Sunday morning when maybe Piero's done with announcements and say, I have another announcement, right? Uh, Steve sinned against me. And he did this, and he did that, and he did this and this. And so there you go. I'm just walking out Matthew 18, 17. So, and then you sit back down. And everybody goes, what, what was that? Why did we all have to know that? And why, now everybody wants to know what happens, right? That's not what we're talking about here. Is telling it to the church does not mean telling it to the entire church, Right? Telling it to the church, we just saw in chapter 16, Jesus is building his church on the confession of Peter as the first leader of the church, and then subsequently all the other leaders of the church after Peter. And what do we call the leaders in the church? We call them elders. Paul tells Titus to set things in order by appointing elders, and then he goes on to list the biblical qualifications of elders, and he does that in 1 Timothy as well. Telling it to the church means telling it to the church leadership. Not the whole church. Why? The goal is still reconciliation. And while we're on the subject of the church, this is only one of two places in the Gospels that Jesus talks about the church. It's worth, worth asking here, what is a church? A church, again, is a visible outpost of the kingdom of God. I said it during communion. It's not a building. It is a gathering. That's our word here for church. Ecclesia. It means gathering. It means assembly. And the church is an assembly of those who have been born again, those who are justified, regenerated, those who have been adopted into the family of Jesus through faith in Jesus. Therefore, the church, again, not a building, it's a group. And so how do we know that someone is actually a believer if they're in the church or not? Because that's what is the deal, right? If somebody's in the church, right, then they're a believer, how do we verify somebody's a believer? That's the whole process of church membership. That's where the elders listen to a testimony. That's where the elders listen to an understanding of the gospel. And they say, yep, checks out. That's what scripture says. And then there's a process of membership. That's how we know who's in the church and who's not in the church. That's how we know who's a believer, who's not a believer, right? The elders have that authority in the church to verify testimonies and to hear their understanding of the gospel. And in speaking of authority then, the leaders of the church have the authority of heaven as they seek to resolve this in their midst. And one such authority really is the final step. After all other steps have been exhausted, there's one final step. And Jesus says, if still, it does, still doesn't work, if the elders still can't come to a resolution on that, 
Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. That's the last step. That's excommunication. That's where, that's where the elders can no longer in good faith say this person is a Christian. Because of everything that has happened, and here's the key, because of their lack of repentance, we can no longer say that there is a, that is a valid Christian testimony. And that's excommunication. You can understand what excommunication is, right? It means what it says, cutting off of the community, casting them out from the community, all the benefits of being in the community, such as the community meal, like communion. Someone who's been excommunicated cannot take communion. That's the point. He is no longer a member of the church, and you must look at him then as a Gentile or a tax collector. Jesus says, if he doesn't listen to this process, even to the church elders, excommunicate him, let him be as a Gentile and a tax collector. Well, who are those guys? I don't know how to treat somebody like a Gentile or a tax collector. Those are representatives of the first century. Those two people, you were really, really sure that they were not believers, and they didn't want to believe. They didn't have any, they didn't have any Christian bones in their body. They were unbelievers, not part of the church, rejected God. He says, that's how we have to treat someone who has been excommunicated. Those are people that clearly represent not being part of the family of God. Two groups that reject the Bible. And it's so clear to the world that they are not part of the church. Excommunicating someone means that the church elders, again, can no longer validate their testimony as a Christian. The person is acting like an unbeliever. And so that's what we have to call them. We can no longer say that he's part of the family because his continual lack of repentance indicates otherwise. And we have a responsibility not to let this go on any longer for the good of the church. Church authority has to be enacted, and it's such a profoundly powerful thing that Jesus says when the church is literally doing this and acting with the authority in the church, heaven himself and Jesus' presence is with him. Look at verse 18. He says, Truly I say to you, our, our series subtitle, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. He goes into this binding and loosening language once again. We saw that in chapter 16 already with Peter. They're metaphors, right? To bind something means to not allow it. To loose something means to allow it, right? If someone gets to the step and still refuses to repent, you can no longer call them a Christian. You can no longer call them a member. You must use church discipline at this point. Jesus reassures the church that if you're in this spot, be faithful. Be encouraged even. I'm with you. The Spirit of God is with you. And then that last step is church discipline. Up until this point, church, did you notice that the church itself, the leadership, the authority was not involved? Up until this point, who was it? It was you guys. It was the members of the church. And now up until this point, this excommunication point, now this is church discipline. In our bylaws, we call the whole process church restoration, right? We take it right out of Matthew 18. We use that kind of loosely, but really, it's this last part of excommunicating someone is actually just the church discipline part. Jesus encouraged them. He says, if two of you, again, invoking the wisdom of the law, 
right? If they agree on something is in fact sin, and the person is in fact not caring that it is sin, and they're continuing in sin, if they are, again, the key word you need to carry through all these steps is unrepentance, Right? If they're confronted by one person and they say, forget it, go scratch. If they're confronted by, confronted by two people and they say, forget it, both of you are crazy. And then if they're confronted by the elders of the church and say, no, look, you really need to think about this. And they say, you're crazy. I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. They're not showing repentance. One of the saddest things is we see this in marriages. When, when a husband or a wife leaves the spouse and commits sexual immorality, it's like, what are you doing? This is sin. No, no, it's not. No, it's not. You don't understand what I live with. Don't I have a right to be happy? Come on, I, I put up with this for 25 years. No, no, it's sin. You need to, you need to repent. No, I'm not going to repent. Take two or three others with you. No, I'm not going to repent. Take the church others with you. No, I'm not going to repent. It's church discipline at that point. And Jesus gives us the rationale for doing that, right? If you agree on earth, Jesus says that that is sin, then you are in agreement with heaven. Again, we see the parallel of the kingdom of God on earth in the church and the kingdom of God in heaven. Those two things should agree. And Jesus says, if you are doing this by the spirit of God in the church, following the scripture, those two things do agree. If you're calling sin, sin, it agrees. Heaven agrees with you. Why? Because where two or three are gathered, Sooner Goss, really good coffee, in my name, there I am in the midst of them. And this verse is, is kind of taken out of context, right? But we see where this context is now. This context for this verse is in church discipline. If you're agreeing on these things, then I am with you, right? You ever wonder like, oh, well, if two or three are gathered together in my name, then what happens to the one person that's all by himself doing his devos? Then you Jesus isn't with them. That's not how that works, right? It doesn't mean that in context, but it doesn't mean that it's restricted to that, right? If two people are in Starbucks and they're praying, sure, God is with them. If one person's in Starbucks praying, God's still with them, right? So we have to kind of cut this verse correctly. This verse is telling us two things. First, that God is with the gathered church in a very special way. We see that in a passage like 1 Corinthians 5. 1 Corinthians 5, 4. Again, a church discipline case that Paul's navigating. <clears throat> he says, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus. So he says, when you are assembled, same word, ecclesia, when you're gathered together, the spirit is present. So right now, as the church is gathered together, the Spirit of God is present among us. Why? Because we all have the Spirit of God within our own selves. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have the Holy Spirit within you. So when it comes together, right, it forms this very special presence of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus together, right? That is why it is continuing to be super important to prioritize the physical gathering of the church. Online church is not a thing. It's really not. It, it does it in a pinch. I understand that, and that's why we've made it available, right? But the gathered church physically has the Spirit of God present right now in this room. What, what more reason do we need to be together with our brothers and sisters physically? 
But second, this passage tells us that the Spirit of God is at work in the leadership of the church and the members of the church as they seek to live out the calling that they've received as Christians. As we, are, as we seek to be faithful to the calling we've received, as we seek to be faithful to live lives uh, according to the gospel of Jesus Christ, God is present with us. So we can be encouraged in that. And I'll say it this way. The kingdom of God is a place where God is present. The kingdom of God is a place where God is present. Church, do you know how special the gathering is. Look at what Jesus says here. He says, I'm with you. When you seek to live out your calling, you're verifying the heavenly decrees on earth. When you, when you enact scripture, he says, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. As you're seeking to do this, the Holy Spirit empowers us, right? Whatever you allow on earth is a reflection of what is allowed in heaven, Whatever you don't allow on earth is a reflection of what is not allowed in heaven. Jesus literally promises his presence with the church to help us be the church. And that, unfortunately, sometimes means church discipline. Excommunication, again, the opposite of welcoming someone into church membership. When we approve someone for membership at Highlands, we're saying, yes, we've heard their testimony. It's consistent with Scripture. We've heard their understanding of the gospel. We've heard their beliefs about God and all of the top-tier things, right? All of the first-order issues like salvation and Jesus being God and saved by faith and all of that. We agree with that. We allow them to be members, right? Excommunication is the opposite. That's what we're saying. We can no longer verify that their testimony is congruent with a Christian. We can no longer verify that they believe about God, the gospel. We can no longer verify that they're living like a kingdom resident. Excommunication is the last resort. But watch this. Excommunication is also for reconciliation. And if we jump back to 1 Corinthians 5, in one of the most jacked up situations in the Bible, where a man appears to be sleeping with his stepmom or something like that, and Paul, rightfully so, tells them to deal with it, church discipline. He says, it is actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not even tolerated among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? And he says, let him who has done this be removed. From among you. Again, we see that inferred in that. You know who's in, you know who's out, you know who are the members, you know who are at. Let him who has done this be removed from you, excommunicated. He says, For though I'm absent in body, I'm present in spirit, and if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. There's our verse 4 again. When you're assembled in the, in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan. Watch this for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord, right? The goal is still reconciliation, even in excommunication. He says, you need to, you need to remove him from fellowship. Why? So that maybe his spirit, his soul will be protected. You need to, you, maybe this, even this, will cause him to stop and think and be like, whoa, they actually kicked me out of church for this. Maybe I should think about this. Maybe I, maybe I need to repent. 
And that's the point. You need to repent before Jesus comes back. Because that's what Paul says. He says, you do not want that unforgiven sin on your head when Jesus Christ comes back. You need to remember that because it's that serious. He says, eternity is at stake. If we can no longer verify this person is a believer, then what does that mean? It means they're on their way to hell. And so you need to repent. And so this last step, as drastic as it is, is still meant to get somebody to shake them and be like, stop, what are you doing? Your eternity is at stake. It's still for reconciliation. God's presence clearly stated in 1 Corinthians and Matthew in the administration of church discipline, ultimately again for restoration, so that maybe again this man having gone through or this woman having gone through this hardship of excommunication would stop and finally do something that they have not done the whole time, which is repent and ask for forgiveness. And of course, the sin is forgiven. Why is it forgiven? Because Christ forgives all sin. We just sang about it. The blood of the cross is what forgives all sin. But we have to bind the unrepentant in the kingdom of God for the spiritual sake of the person sinning, for the protection of the rest of the church, but also for the witness of the church to the outside world. We cannot allow sin to continue to go unchecked. This is why Jesus is giving us this process. One commentator says it this way, unrepentant sin contaminates the whole church compromising its holiness and its ability to function as God's temple. And therein lies the point of this whole thing. Why even go through this? Why just not do what probably many, many, many other churches in America do and just turn a blind eye and say, I'm not going to stick my nose in someone else's business. We're not called to that, unfortunately. It's too hard. It's too awkward. Why does Jesus go and, and go to such great lengths to teach his disciples and us how to deal with sin in the church? Why? Because it's his church. And that has to reflect who he is. Jesus is pure. Jesus is sinless. Jesus is full of grace. And so we must do our best to reflect what Jesus is. Jesus is sinless and pure. And so I'll say the big idea this way. The kingdom of God is a place of purity kingdom of God must be a place of purity. And Jesus gives us a process here of how to deal with sin in the church as the church needs to be an authentic representation of the kingdom of God in heaven. There's no sin in the kingdom of God in heaven. We've got to do our best to do that here. We're going to sin, obviously. Jesus gives us a process for that. The kingdom of God is a place of purity Again, no sin being in the kingdom of heaven. There will be no sin when Jesus returns. Can I get an amen about that? Because that is just going to be like sin just tangles us up and evil. Like we look at the news, we look at the Ukraine, we look at all that. All that's going to be gone in the kingdom of heaven. There will be no sin. There will be no evil. There will be no sickness. We must work to keep the church pure like Jesus is pure. We must work to keep the church to be an accurate reflection to the world of what the church actually means and stands for. We must have the purity of reconciliation, our purity in relationships, our purity where God himself is present. But please hear me clearly. This is not the sin police. Right? We, don't, we don't run around constantly looking at other people's lives to try and catch them in some sort of rule violation. Gotcha! Sin, sin, I found sin, it's over there. 
that's not, that's not what we're doing here. And at each escalation step, there's one thing in common. There's a lack of repentance. It's common to look at church discipline as harsh. And it's something that's foreign to us. And the world is like, that's stupid. You're, just in, you're in other people's business and you're judging them. Right? Doesn't it say something like that in the Bible? Don't judge. It does. But it also says judge with right judgment. That's what Jesus is telling us here. Look at the grace, though. Look at what's in this. Every step, please consider. Every step, please repent. Every step, please think about this. And everybody says, no, no, no. And that's where you're going to end up in church discipline, right? And we hold to this here at Highlands Bible Church. And sometimes people will come to us and say, as elders, and say, this happened. This person did this. This person did that. You need to do this. You need to intervene. And we're going to point you right to Matthew 18. And we're going to say, okay, thank you. We'll pray. But y'all need to get together. You need to talk to each other. You need to follow what we have here because Jesus has laid it out. This whole process is for the protection of the sheep and the purity of the church. And that passage, again, that we were in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul agrees. And just to land the plane here, he says, this summarizing this crazy situation in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 5, 6, he says, your boasting is not, gone, not good. Do you not know, watch this, that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? This is cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. Cleanse out the lump, the, the, the leaven, the sin from the church. Cleanse out the sin from the church. Why? Otherwise, sin will infect the whole church. Just like a little bit of leaven infects the whole dough. Sin will continue to spread, and it will spread like wildfire, and it will infect the church, and he says, get rid of it. The kingdom of God is a place of purity, so likewise, church, we must be as well. How do we do that? We're serious about sin in our midst. We're serious about sin in our own lives. We have a process that's been given to us by Jesus in Matthew 18. We remember that the kingdom of God is a place of reconciliation, of relationships, and where God is present in a very, very special way with us. Therefore, we strive to make the church as much as possible reflect the kingdom of God. And aren't you glad that we have grace in all this? Aren't you glad that even when we're not doing this correctly, even when we do sin against each other, right, it is not something that we're trying to one-up somebody about? What's the goal? Reconciliation, forgiveness. Why? Because we've been forgiven so much. I'm stealing from next week's sermon, but I can't help it. <laughs> we remember how much God loves us, and we have to love each other that much. Father, this is a tough word this morning. This is, this is something that we don't really like to think about, but yet something that you yourself have called us to. Lord, help us to think rightly about this. Help us to think maturely about this. Help us to do the hard work in our relationships, Lord. When, when we realize we've sinned against one another, that we would be quick to ourselves to ask for forgiveness even before the other person has to come to us. But Lord, if we ever are approached, we pray that we would take it seriously. We pray for the whole process. We pray that you will continue to give us grace and unity and peace. And we pray that our church here, the outpost of the kingdom of God in Sussex County, would reflect as much as we possibly can 
the kingdom of God in heaven. We pray it through Christ our Lord. Amen.